From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The damage along I-70 through Glenwood Canyon is extreme. We'll hear from a CDOT engineer about the unrelenting mud and debris flows. Then, it's tempting to think more than a year into the pandemic that we should be done grieving the opportunities we lost months ago. We'll talk with a psychologist who says that mental health, like fighting the pandemic itself, isn't linear. Later, a bike ride through Grand Junction's history becomes an opera. Biking makes me happy without fail. I can see where I'm going and where I've been. I can look all around me and take it all in. I love Plus, Camp Amachi in southeast Colorado is closer to becoming part of the national park system. We'll hear from a woman who was forced to stay in the camp as a young girl. She's been returning to excavate and preserve what's left. Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. A few days to a few weeks. That's how long Governor Jared Polis estimates I-70 may remain closed in Glenwood Canyon. Heavy rains and flooding shut down the highway again last week. Flash floods, mudslides, and debris flows have been an ongoing problem along the crucial east-west corridor for much of the summer. Let's get some perspective on what's happening and how to move forward from Steve Harrelson. He's the chief engineer for the Colorado Department of Transportation. Steve, welcome to the program. Thank you. The weather is making it hard to predict how long it'll take to reopen I-70. The governor pointed out Monday that about four inches of rain fell in that area over the weekend. That's more rain than it normally gets in the entire month of July. I'm curious what that means for CDOT's decision making. Do you have to wait and see what the weather is every morning before you move your equipment in? Um, Yes. Well, we've we've kind of got a cadence in. You know, the the mornings during the monsoon season are, are generally pretty dry. And then the, the storms build in the afternoon. So we've been moving our crews in, I think, before dawn and trying to get as much work done as we can until the, the flash flood warnings rise up in mid to late afternoon. Some days they don't. Um, and then, then we get the crews out so that they can, uh, can be safe when the, the rains hit. And some days the rains hit and carry a lot of debris. And some days doesn't rain at all. Some days it rains lightly. It's, it's just hard to predict. But we've, we've been in a cadence for about five, six weeks and, and that's how we're doing it. It's, you know, it is continues to be a um, an event. We're not we're not out of the woods yet until this monsoon eases up a little. We heard that in some areas, the mud and debris covering the highway is 10 inches deep. How do you move your equipment through that kind of slog? It, it, it's about 10 feet, 10, 15 feet deep in areas. Um, there are three locations where the road uh, has suffered some structural damage um there's there's a um for those of you who've driven through glenwood canyon there's a uh, a structure where it's the the highway is kind of cantilevered out over a retaining wall and in one of those spots the cantilevered section which is designed to carry you know eighty-five thousand pound semi trucks is completely sheared off and um there are rocks 
you know, in that in that debris flow that are the size of uh, house trailers. Um, and they've moved hundreds of yards, if not thousands of feet down from the top of the canyon down onto the road. And that that uh, cantilevered section has been completely broken off. Um, so it's in and 10 feet of debris. Wow, 10 feet of debris, that is really deep debris flow. Where does it go once you scoop it away? Um, we've been hauling it to some, some sites at either end of the canyon. Uh, yesterday, I think they hauled close to 500 truckloads of debris. And I, you know, I was at a briefing this morning and it's, I think the, uh, the gentleman in charge of that said he, that's about one one thousandth of what's up there. So, you know, I, I was in the Canyon all day yesterday. Um, it's, uh, there's about a three mile stretch where it's, it's apocalyptic. The, the there's just mud, uh, as I said, 10, 15 feet deep. Um, the road is, I think Sunday, we finally got a, a, a one lane route punched through but you have to kind of snake your way from the upper levels to the lower level um, to get around where the where these uh, structures have been damaged and where there's where the mud has been cleared. But there, our crews are out there um, moving mud as as quickly as they can. And it sounds like it may take quite a while. Besides moving equipment, what other challenges are you facing as you start repair work? I, I, I understand that, like, obviously you have to keep your crew safe. So tell me about the chance of spontaneous debris or mudslides occurring. So most of the debris flows occur during, during rainstorms. And once the rain stops, um, you know, within a few hours, the, the mud stops moving. Um, the, I was out there about a week ago and then again yesterday. And, and the difference that I've noticed is, um, earlier the, the debris flows were, were much finer material. Um, yesterday there was a lot, much, uh, a lot larger rocks, um, cobbles. So I think, you know, the, the top that eroded down at first was much finer. And now that it's getting deeper into the, these, uh, side Canyon Creek beds, we're getting the, the much larger material. So I think that's probably our, our bigger challenge is the, the early debris flows were kind of, you know, oozy mud, oatmeal type consistency. Now it's bowling balls and small Volkswagens and house trailers that are, they're having to move. So some of those big rocks, they're going to have to, uh, to shoot, you know, with explosives to break them up so that they can move them. Oh. Governor Polis suggested that I-70 could eventually reopen with one lane in each direction. If there were perfect weather, and I know that that is a huge if, how long do you think it could take to do that? Um, you know, I, I think uh, the governor's days to weeks, if, if it stopped raining today, um, uh, you know, I think a few days is very optimistic. I think uh, uh, realistically with the weather patterns, um, we're still a couple weeks out. The term unprecedented is being used to describe what's happening, but I think it's fair to ask, is it really unprecedented? Um, no, there's a long history of um, forest fires and erosion. I think, uh, you know, the forces that built that canyon are, are the forces that we're fighting right now. So it's, it's you know, the forces of nature. Um, that canyon has eroded over um, millions of years and uh you know, forest fires are a natural occurrence. Um, there was a, uh, a USGS hydrologist um, named Bob Jarrett who did a study in the wake of the Big Thompson flood in the 70s that uh, looked, he called it paleo hydrology, where he went and 
looked through ancient debris flows and found evidence of, you know, charcoal from forest fires and carbon dated and such. And, and he predicted or he, he tried to model um, how the hydrology went. And, and, you know, his attempt was to see just how unusual the big Thompson flood. But I think that that sort of science can be extrapolated now that, you know, these things have been happening for um, millions of years. It's just uh, the way nature works. If, is there anything unique to this section of Glenwood Canyon that makes the debris flow and the mudslides worse, the burn scar notwithstanding? Um, you know, it's just very steep terrain. Um, you know, we've had uh, other forest fires in the state. Um, you know, up at the in the Poudre Canyon, we had a big fire, you know, 10 or 12 years ago, whenever that was. We had the Waldo Peak burns. Um, you know, they all have similar uh, phenomenon. But, you know, Glenwood Canyon is, is that is such a deep and steep canyon. And those side canyons that feed into it are, you know, several thousand feet up above and very large watersheds. So, you know, I think the, the rainstorms last week, even had we not had a forest fire, we would have had some problems. You know, there, there have been rock slides and debris flows through Glenwood Canyon, um, even without forest fire burn scars. So, um, you know, when it rains hard, stuff moves, stuff erodes. That's how the canyon was formed. Governor Polis is getting ready to declare a state disaster for the area and to request a federal disaster declaration to get federal help. He also mentioned some plans to prevent future mudslide disasters. I'll just say that as we build out infrastructure with the new bipartisan state infrastructure plan, if there's a federal plan, and we we hope that there is, that climate resiliency is at the very heart of that plan. Uh, And that means that we need to look at things like fire risk mitigation, retaining walls, Uh, in a new and different way, given the reality that we face on the ground in Colorado. As an engineer, what do you want to see happen to prevent this from happening again? Well, um, actually, I think Colorado is way ahead in the resiliency studies. Um, We're a nationwide leader. After the 2013 floods, um, we looked at reconstructing a lot of that infrastructure um, with resiliency in mind. I think in uh, Big Thompson Canyon, which was you know destroyed in 1976, and then again in 2013, we we did some rerouting. We we tried to uh, elevate the road up above where the river might be, and 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 make it such that uh, the the river could pass without threatening the road. So we've we've developed some techniques with that. Um, we've also performed you know as part of that same exercise, um, we performed a border to border resiliency study of I-70. Um, looking at, uh, you know, how to calculate benefits and costs for for building uh, resiliency elements to our infrastructure. So we'd look at, you know, how much does it cost to build, you know, up, say upsize a bridge so that it can um, carry more flow than than it otherwise might, and if that prevents, you know, a bridge washout every fifty years. Um, is the, is it a worthwhile expenditure of money? So we've been trying to think of that, that or think of things that way, um, you know, since the 2013 floods. And I think that's that's just going to grow. And at the same time, there still is 10 to 15 feet of mud sitting on some of these roads. So what sort of preemptive things would you like to see going forward? Um, you know, I think the the trick is to to build a passage underneath the road such that the that the debris can get can get underneath and, and not, you know, what's, what's happened is there's a, 
a bridge or a culvert that's designed to take take water and then when a bunch of debris comes in uh, it clogs that that infrastructure and then it has to go you know it, it's it, it needs to keep flowing so if we can create paths for the debris to get underneath the the roadway or the other alternative is to build um, what I call bathtubs upstream where where the debris can land in a bathtub and not hit the infrastructure and then we can remove it um, safely. Um, that's something we can do. That's very difficult to do in the narrow canyon. Um, it's also very difficult to do in a um, aesthetically pleasing manner, the bathtubs. I think the, the way is to construct things that allow the debris to, to pass through. Um, you know, the other thing is to try to stabilize that watershed. Um, most of the watershed is owned by the Forest Service, so we will have to work closely with them um, to, to try to stabilize those watersheds more quickly. And we've talked about looking at other, we had, uh, rather, the governor talked about looking at things like climate change. There may be an influx of federal money. As terrible as the situation is, I'm curious if it also poses opportunity with those extra resources and the extra attention. What else might you be able to get done? Um, you know, I think we, we will use our, the lessons we used, learned from the 2013 floods and, and just see if we can try to build it back better. Um, and and learn some lessons from these events. You know, there there there's been no shortage of um, of rock slides and debris flows, not just in Glenwood Canyon, but statewide. And you know, every time a disaster strikes, we we learn some lessons and and try to apply those in the future. And I just want to be clear before we go. When we talked about those two weeks before reopening with one lane, possibly. Um, does that again? How long do you think that it could take before total reopening of the highway? Um, you know, we're shooting for a lot of reasons before before winter. Um, it's it's no fun to do those sorts of repairs in the middle of January. Um, we also realize that the, the ski industry is big, big tourist driver. We also realize that this this is a link for all of Western Colorado to get to Denver. Um, it's it's a critically important road, and you know we've got crews up there right now working. Um, well, not quite around the clock because when it rains, they can't work, but uh, we've got a lot of very tired, exhausted people that have been pouring their all into this, and that's not going to end until we get it opened. Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Steve Harrelson is the chief engineer for CDOT. He joined us to discuss the closure of I-70 at Glenwood Canyon because of damage caused by heavy rains and subsequent mudslides, as well as the forecast for how long it may take for the repairs to be completed and the highway reopened. How are you doing? We've been dealing with a pandemic for more than a year that's meant changing restrictions, losses, and uncertainty. Even reopening brings its own social stresses. Now rising COVID cases in Colorado and around the country underscore that the pandemic is not over yet. If that has you feeling anxious, frustrated, or overwhelmed, you're not alone. Rick Ginsburg is a licensed psychologist and former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. Welcome back to the show, Rick. Thanks so much for having me, Avery. So on the one hand, we have this summer where things are more open than they have been in more than a year. People's social lives might have been a little chaotic. I know mine has been. Then there's the uncertainty about rising COVID cases. Tell me about the stresses you hear people facing. 
Well, one of the things that we see people dealing with right now is just the uh, enormous expectations that they had that perhaps this pandemic was over, despite some of their um, rational mind telling them that it wasn't and, and news feeds telling them that it was not. So we're um, having people feeling rather disappointed, somewhat scared, stressed and anxious yet again, and really fatigued about the possibility of having to do all of this over again, whatever all of this means to them. And most people can't just create stability for themselves right now. So much is beyond our control. And I imagine that's contributing to some of those anxious feelings you're describing. Certainly. Uh, this is a, uh, a disease and a pandemic that we don't know uh, a lot about, it seems like. And uh, what we do know seems to change. And so I think what a lot of people are experiencing is a, a feeling of disappointment um, overall, uh, along with a whole slew of other emotions. But disappointment, I think, um, is one of the most um, common reactions people have. And, and uh, when you look up disappointment on the internet, or you're trying to figure out something about it, the image that constantly uh, you see is this image of a ice cream cone that's been dropped <laughs> up the sidewalk. And um, I think that really encapsulates what a lot of people feel about this summer. Yeah. And what do you do with that disappointment? Well, the first thing is being aware that it's there and understanding and being patient with yourself and, and being gentle with yourself and other people around you. Um, this is a uh, sort of a whirlwind of emotions. It's a bit of a roller coaster that we're all experiencing. And to feel um, a, a wide range of emotions is quite normal. So be gentle with yourself, be gentle with other people, um, and then try to be aware of the emotions that you're feeling and see if you can begin to put them in various boxes. Can you label them? Do you understand where they are stemming from and what some of the um, antecedents are? Um, why, why, what is the reason that you might feel angry or disappointed or upset or sad or grieving for that matter? And you mentioned anger. I want to focus on anger and frustration for a moment. Folks might be mad at a particular person who's not responding to the pandemic the way they think that they should. Or maybe they're mad at a whole group of people. How can people understand their own anger a little better? Well, a lot of times when we talk, when psychologists talk about anger, and this is probably something that a lot of people, a lot of lay people can relate to, uh, we think of it as a secondary emotion. So in the sense that there's so frequently something underneath anger. Anger is um, sometimes the easiest or the most basic uh, manifestation of deeper levels of hurt or sadness, jealousy, envy. And so when you're feeling angry, first of all, be aware of what it's doing to your body and what you're, um, what it's doing to your mind. And then be careful not to project things onto other people. So that's something that as human beings, we do a lot. Um, the, the sort of old adage is, you know, somebody has a bad day at work and sort of takes it out on the dog or takes it out on the, uh, on a child or, or an inanimate object. And I think if we can slow down that process, understand what we're doing, and then examine some of the different layers of um, emotion that exist underneath the anger, then we're far better off at being able to resolve it and regulate our own emotions. And since the beginning of the pandemic, we have talked about grief for people who've died, of course, but also for lost opportunities. At this point, 
what might grief for the way the pandemic has changed our lives look like? I think it's easy to think that we should be done with that by now. Absolutely. Um, And anybody who's experienced bereavement, uh, actual bereavement, the death of uh, a loved one, um, understands that this is not a linear process. It tends not to be. Um, So grief is unfortunately something that keeps on giving. Um, So one can imagine um, a somebody who loses somebody and then uh, years later there's a special event and that person's not there where that grief comes back and much much like that i think many people with the pandemic are experiencing that Um, one can um, put their head towards perhaps a a student who missed out on a freshman year of college or a senior in high school and how years from now that loss is still there it doesn't mean that they need to experience it the same exact way, but um, in understanding that it doesn't necessarily go away and it's not always linear, but it fades and goes back and forth. So um, oftentimes people liken a grief process as not sort of an upward climb where you get better and better and better, but sort of a, a ship lost at sea, sort of unmoored, going into different bays and, and eddies, if you will. Um, and, and occasionally finding smooth water. And that's what we're hoping everybody will do. I think it's also important to talk about the strengths and the skills that people learn during times of stress. We're not all destined to come out of this in poor mental health, right? Certainly not. Um, there is a concept um, that some people might just be intuitively familiar with, but there is some good research behind it called stress inoculation. And, and basically what this does is it's a psychological process in which we become increasingly resilient. Um, think of a, a muscle or a tendon that needs to heal and uh, grow, and it's under a particular level of stress, but it gets, it gets, it strengthens. And so when we are inoculated to stress, we have little bits of stress or even large bit, bits of stress. And what it does is it builds our psychological resources. It can build our psychological resources, not only for that continuing chronic stress, such as this pandemic, but new problems that might arise. And so there is a lot of silver lining to look at um, in terms of uh, this pandemic, as well as this resurgence. And really, it's about um, ensuring that we have realistic optimism as we go forward. In about the 30 seconds we have left, are there simple things that people can be doing to cultivate those strengths? We've learned a lot throughout the pandemic. And whatever you've been relying on in terms of your coping mechanisms, or if you have been thinking of trying something new, now is the time to rely on those old ones, those old skills, and develop new ones. Um, That can be anything from meditation to exercise to talking to friends to seeking therapy Um, and um, sharing your stories with other people. Um, So please do those as much as possible. And and, Mm. um, I think we'll all be the better for it. Rick, thank you so much. Rick Ginsburg is a licensed psychologist and former president of the Colorado Psychological Association. If you or someone you know is really struggling right now, I encourage you to call the Colorado Crisis Services hotline, 1-844-493-TALK. Or you can text TALK to 38255. I'm Gail Clapper, and my husband Jack and I are Colorado Public Radio Leadership Partners. 
I'm increasingly feeling that the role that Colorado Public Radio is playing in our media environment is very important. And they've stepped up in a way that allows us to get information that we need in an objective way. The Leadership Partner Program is an important component of our philanthropic giving because it gives back to us. There's information at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Avery Lill. Miles and miles of bike trails weave through the Grand Valley, and the cycling events draw locals and tourists alike. But you don't even have to enjoy riding to get in on this one. A bike opera. I love to ride. It makes me feel free. I feel like I'm flying. The pilot is me. Whether soaring across pavement or hitting the trail. Biking makes me happy without fail. I can see where I'm going and where I've been. I can look all around me and take it all in. I love that feeling of pulsating endorphins. When I cap a hill of epic The opera is based on a book by Main Street bike shop owner Chris Brown. Local music educator Scott Betts turned Brown's story into what he calls a folk jazz opera. It's happening this weekend in Grand Junction. Chris and Scott, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Chris, you're not... I've never heard the doobie-doos before. (laughs) (laughs) Was that you? Yes, that was me. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) They sound so fun. Um, Chris, your novel, Bicycle Junction, it spins through 140 years of Grand Junction history with a little time travel for Spice. What sparked the idea to turn this into an opera with the Doobie Doobie Doos? My wife said it would be something that could never be done. So I took Scott out to lunch and I threw him a manuscript and I said, turn this into a musical. And he showed up like six months later with like 37 songs in his hand. Scott, this is the first opera you've written. (laughs) This is your first opera to write, but you have performed in and directed some musical productions. How difficult was it to create an opera about bicycles? Well, it, 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 it wasn't that difficult. And, um, you know, I had a lot of help from, uh, I, I did these workshops with the Central City Opera. Um, they have these workshops where they teach you how to how to create a musical or an opera with a bunch of students. And I uh, kind of used those skills there. I mean, I've been a songwriter anyway, but uh, I it this it really helped. And um, and and you know, it really isn't so much about the bicycles as it's about the people and then their relationships. And just a very basic question, what is the difference between an opera and a musical? Well, technically, if it, if there's no spoken words, as everything is sung, then it's really an opera. It doesn't necessarily mean it's done in a bel canto opera singing type of a style, but uh, yeah, it's it's an opera because everything everything is sung. Okay, so you're entirely singing Chris's story. Chris, we talked with you last year about your book, Without giving too much away, remind us of the premise of the story. It begins with a bike crash and ends with a romance 1,800 miles later. Correct. So uh, some guy comes to Grand Junction to train for a race, and he's, while he's riding the local trails, he, uh, he crashes his bike and goes back in time. And the only way to get forward, back to the future, is to pedal his way back to 2015. 
in this opera, it begins with a crash when the traveler stumbles onto the stage along with a bike, and then he sings these lines when he gets up and dusts himself off. Well, that was fun. But nothing seems to be broken. What a way to start a week of writing. Why do I get myself in these situations? Why do I risk injury? Why do I spend the money to travel to these biking locations? Why? Well, I guess the answer to that is fairly easy. That's Christopher McKim singing there. He's a music instructor at Colorado Mesa University. Scott, you managed to pack a whole lot of Grand Junction history at an hour and a half production. It's got characters like screenwriter Dalton Trumbo, serial killer Ted Bundy, and Colorado National Monument founder John Otto. How did you decide who to squeeze in? Well, I picked what would rhyme. (laughs) 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 Actually, you know, I, I, I made a storyboard first, like an outline of what I wanted the story to be. And kind of hunted for the stuff that I wanted to to bring out. And I'm not really sure how I really decided what to use and what not to use. But um, I don't know, just the stuff that seemed interesting and that I could I could make a couple of lines about that would rhyme. And um, sometimes we have the people on there and, uh, you know, sometimes we just sing about them. So. And, uh, and actually, that's me singing there. That's my demo recordings. And um, Christopher McKim will be singing that in the show. That's great. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay, one of the really strange pieces of Colorado history that you included in here is the Miss Atomic Energy pageants. And these are part of Grand Junction's history. The winners of these 1950s beauty pageants would go home with a truckload of uranium ore. So you wrote an aria about it called Radiant Beauty. We are girls of radiant beauty, the most radiant will win. This is our patriotic duty, a lovely glow radiates from our perfect skin. We are the prettiest of atomic city, or what you know as Grand Junction. Chris, did you have a sounds hit? better with the girls singing? <laughs> <laughs> so that's you singing there again, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Chris, did you have a hand in shaping your book into an opera? No. <laughs> <laughs> Scott's an independent; he works on his own, and so I, I knew what he was up to. But um, the best thing in the world is to, to take a project and step back and just let it evolve into its thing, and it's even better and more beautiful than I could have ever imagined. And Scott, we're hearing you singing there. You're not going to be singing those songs in the opera, but tell us about the role that you'll be playing performing the music. I'll be um, running the the, uh, the orchestra, and uh, the orchestra is just a, a four-piece group, which is actually my group called Hot Tub Jazz. So I'll be playing guitar, and um, I have a bass player and a drummer and trombone. And uh, we... We're doing a, a lot of improvising in the uh, in the accompaniment. 
And Chris, will you be on stage for the show? Nope, I'll be in the audience uh, selling tickets in the back and doing some other things. Nice. Scott, there are going to be a lot of historical photographs of Grand Junction in Chris's book. Um, rather, those are there, and you're going to be projecting some of those on stage. What are some of the images that the audience will be seeing? Well, they'll, um, much of the time they'll be seeing downtown as a background in, uh, in various times. The very first scene when he comes to town the first time, um, there'll be a picture of Main Street in in uh, 1888 and uh, the next time he comes back to town there's a picture of Main Street in 1898 and etc 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 and there's also some pictures of the people that we sing about so there'll be there's a there's a a big picture of uh, of John Otto up there there's a there'll be a picture of the radiant beauties there'll be (laughs) uh, and there'll be some signs also, signs that telling you uh, what year it is and where you're at and all that kind of stuff. Chris, how did you compile these photos for your book? So I've been in my bike shop for about 20 years and uh, people keep sending me and bringing in uh, their family antiques and historical pictures and newspaper clippings and things like that. So I've been collecting those photos. Uh, the book has over 400 pictures in it and the majority are black and white, uh, dating all the way back to 1880s. And um, every one of them has to have either a bicycle in it or somehow be related to a bicycle theme um, that's in the book. And so there's a lot of old cycling club stuff from the 1890s, which is pretty cool. What an incredible way to be able to explore the history of Grand Junction. Scott, what is the biggest challenge of bringing this to stage? Well, there was a lot. Um, <laughs> the, uh, the the biggest challenge, I think, was was trying to get a venue and uh, get a uh, get get a lot of backing for it which, uh, we we needed to raise a bunch of money and uh, <laughs> we had we we finally got ourselves under the umbrella of the uh, Mesa County Historical Society and Chris has been running around town badgering everybody for money so um, that's been really really helpful but that was probably the biggest challenge that and of course we started to get ready to to produce this thing in February of 2020. Oh, wow. So this has been a long time (laughs) in the making. Well, I'm so excited that it is coming this weekend. Chris and Scott, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thank you. Chris Brown is the author of Bicycle Junction. Scott Betts is the musician who turned it into an opera called One Bike. One Bike will be presented this Sunday, August 7th at Colorado Mesa University. Everything at most important is rule number one. First and foremost, biking is A former internment camp in southeast Colorado that housed Japanese Americans during World War II is closer to becoming part of the national park system. The U.S. House of Representatives voted overwhelmingly Thursday, supporting that designation for Camp Amachi. The vote was 416 to 2. Colorado Representatives Democrat Joe Neguse and Republican Ken Buck represent the area where the camp is located and their co-sponsors on the bill. Nagus says it's an important step for preserving this dark history. I've always believed that the landscapes, the cultural places, the stories that we choose to protect really reflect our values as a country. And in that vein, 
you know, the story of Amachi is, is such an important one. Carlene Tanaguchi Tinker was a young girl when she and her family were forced to stay in the camp. Now she's been returning to help excavate and preserve what's left. Bonnie Clark is an archaeologist and directs the University of Denver's Amachi Research Project. We spoke in May. Carlene, let's start with some of your story. You're 81 years old now, so you were very young during World War II, just a toddler. What's your most distinct memory of being at Amachi? Oh, golly, there are so many, but one really stands out. Uh, given your, your climate uh, of being very dry, uh, there were constant uh, sandstorms. And when my dad would take me to dinner, where we had to stand in line for the mess hall, he would hoist me up on his shoulders, wrap a scarf around my face so I wouldn't get blinded by the sand. And there we were three times a day lining up for our food. Wow. And that must have been such a change from California where you had been growing up. You also remember taking a bath, right? Oh, yeah. That, too, is really memorable, particularly since we found those on one of the Amachi field schools recently. Uh, Customarily, my mom, my two uh, maternal aunts, and I would march off to uh, our bathtub. And in Japanese, it's called ofuro. And typically, they're built on top of a platform. They're typically enclosed by uh, like a a house, maybe like a gazebo. And uh, the tin, the water is held in a tin, looks like a trough for horses. It's on top of a, a coal source of heat. There are cinder blocks that are being burned underneath. Well, in our case, ours was not enclosed. I would remember walking up to the platform with my mom and my aunts. And as is also the custom, you wash before with soap and water, then you rinse and then you get into the tub. And I can still feel, isn't that funny? I can still feel the sensation of the warm water. And as I looked up as a little kid, I'm looking at the stars on a black sky. What an amazing memory. And I still remember that quite vividly. Wow, that is so vivid. When your family was finally released from the camp, you moved back to California. How much did your parents talk with you about that time at Amachi? You know, I think for a lot of people, a lot of people of my age, we ask each other, did your parents ever really talk about this? And in my case, they did not. Uh, I'm not sure why. Maybe it's because of shame, embarrassment, or it may also have been because, you know, you accept what you were, um, that you were in camp and life goes on, life goes forward. But in any case, uh, for me, I did not have that experience of people talking to me at home. Many Japanese Americans who were interned lost virtually everything, or they had to sell off their businesses, homes, possessions at very low prices. Was that the case for your family? Well, in my case, we were living in Los Angeles. My parents didn't own any property like so many farmers, for example. So in our case, we did not lose very much. Uh, So for us, it was not as tragic as it was for lots of people. Bonnie, let's bring you in here. You've been playing a key role in uncovering much of the history at Amachi. Can you describe what the place looks like now? Well, you know, for anybody in Colorado who has been out to the High Plains, you know, once you get past the Front Range and you head east, 
you know, imagine those, those, that kind of, you know, sort of rolling sandy hills with sagebrush and yucca. And that's really what it looks like, except that at Amachi, especially as you get closer, you start to see rows and rows of trees. And those trees were all planted by um, the incarceries at Amachi. You also, as you come up, typically you're going to come through the Arkansas Valley. So you'll be along the train tracks. And those are the train tracks that, that brought people to Amachi. And then you turn up and you go through the fields that helped to support the people in the camp. They were part of the project. And so you've got this historic irrigation line with big cottonwood trees along it. And then as you hit up at Amachi, that's where you see, first off, the roads are still there. They're crushed limestone. So they kind of stand out, this, these white roads. And then as you move further up the hill and into the camp is when you start to see little concrete pads on either side. And those are the foundations for the buildings that were there. And for the most part, those are still present. And you start to notice the trees. And um, there are now a few buildings that have been reconstructed, as well as a couple of the important key features, one of the guard towers, as well as the water tower. And if you do get out and wander around, you might find um, a chunk of a tin can or the top of a, a soda bottle cap, you know, lots of little things that are remnants of, you know, the thousands of people who live there. And on top of reconstructing some of these buildings, you've done quite a bit of excavating at the camp. Tell me about a discovery that you found particularly helpful for understanding the place. There's so many of them. Um, but one that, that actually happened relatively recently and touches on Carlene's experience is that we, a lot of our work is driven by two different things. So as a professor at the University of Denver, you know, we have an on, this ongoing research project that's really geared towards better understanding the camp landscape, because we understand that to be a way that the expertise of so many of these, you know, folks who were making their living as agriculturalists, you know, so as farmers, as nursery owners, as people who owned truck farms. So knowing how they took their expertise in growing things and implemented it in this entirely new place of the High Plains of Colorado was a way that we could really see both their expertise and then something that we've seen as really a source of resilience for them in terms of the gardening and landscaping. But I also oversee a bunch of student research projects. And so we're also out there helping the site managers, um, basically the town of Grenada, to do archaeology in ahead of when they do site developments. And that's an important part of preservation law to be able to make sure that at this really significant site that you're not impacting these important archaeological resources. Carlene, you've done some excavating with Bonnie over the last 10 years, and you've made a lot of discoveries. You mentioned the bathtub. You also saw the barracks where your family lived. Now bipartisan members of Colorado's delegation are pushing in Congress to have Amachi named as a National Historic Site. Carlene, what would that mean for you? Well, I'll tell you, it's uh, going to camp was the beginning of my life, beginning of my personal history. And seeing it become a national park unit would sort of bring sort of it full circle to a very nice culmination. It gives a sort of a nice 
package to my personal history. And it would be something that would be shared for generations to see what we as a, a group of people were wrongfully sent away. But in spite of that, we made the best of it. We survived. And I think we gave back to the country in spite of how we were treated. So I think I think it would be wonderful. And for that reason, among others, of course, it's important that Amachi be recognized as a national park. And I hope with the uh, response that we're getting now that it looks like it may actually become a reality. The thing about a park service site is that it is, it's protected in perpetuity. That's the way that the park service is. And, and I think that's so important for a place like Amachi, and particularly because it does have such good physical integrity. And so Amachi not only tells its own story, but it helps to tell the story of the other of the 10 camps that don't have that sort of legibility that you can't go and, and, and experience the cultural, that cultural landscape. And I also think that Amachi really tells the story of the Asian American experience in the American heartland. And I think that's such an important experience right now for us to be grappling with and understanding that those histories, the history of agriculture and sugar beet farming and growing onions in Colorado is an Asian American story. Bonnie Clark is director of DU's Amachi Research Project. Carlene Tanagoshi Tinker was incarcerated at Camp Amachi with her family during World War II. We spoke in May. On Thursday, the U.S. House voted to add Camp Amachi to the national park system. Right now, it's a national historic landmark. If it becomes part of the national park system, it will get more federal resources. For that to happen, the Senate must vote on the idea next. Colorado's two U.S. Senators, Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, have requested a hearing for the bill. The Front Range can't seem to get a break from pollution, ozone pollution this summer. And this year is already on pace to break the all-time record of warnings about ozone. CPR climate and environment reporter Sam Brash spoke with my colleague Mike Lamp. Sam, a lot of people are familiar with this kind of pollution, but it's good to start with the basics. What is ozone and where does it come from? You bet. So uh, ozone is one of the stranger pollutants out there for a couple reasons. First, it's just oxygen, like the oxygen we breathe, with an extra atom attached to it. That little change makes it really volatile and dangerous to our bodies. Second, it's not a primary pollutant. It's a secondary pollutant. So that means it doesn't come out of a smokestack anywhere. It's formed in the atmosphere through a chemical reaction, usually between nitrogen oxides and volatile organic compounds. You add heat and sunlight you get ozone. Um, Those pollutants come from a bunch of different sources along the Front Range, but mainly we're talking about vehicle exhaust and oil and gas operations. And you have reported that this part of Colorado has already seen 37 ozone warnings this year. That's where health officials either advise uh, either sensitive groups or everybody to avoid outdoor activity. Why should we be concerned about ozone? So what's really clear is that ozone irritates people's respiratory systems. You know, you might get like a scratchy throat, you might cough a little bit, general lung inflammation. Uh, That can be really dangerous to kids. It can be really dangerous to people with conditions like asthma or emphysema. That's why when we see ozone pollution go up, we usually see ER visits go up too. But with healthy people, those conditions are usually temporary. Once the air clears up, your lungs do too. Well, what if it doesn't clear up? 
Yeah, I put that question to uh, Dr. Anthony Gerber. He's a pulmonologist at National Jewish Health. Uh, He explains it with an analogy. It's a little like wearing a bad pair of shoes. So if you wear a tight pair of shoes, you know, some people get a blister and then it's going to heal and that's that. But if you wear a a bad fitting pair of shoes for years, some people are going to go on to get, you know, bunions and sort of, you know, real long-term changes. And he pointed out a few studies that have pretty concerning consequences from prolonged ozone exposure. Uh, some of those studies have linked it with higher death rates from lung disease. Kind of makes sense. But others show it could be associated with like lower birth rates and even kids developing asthma. So not just you know exacerbating asthma, but developing asthma later in life. Right. That sounds uh, pretty serious. And is that what we could expect from this long bout of bad ozone this summer? Yeah, Gerber expects so. You know, if you go forward 10 or 20 years, he thinks people who did not consistently breathe this uh, high levels of ozone day after day after day are going to have better health than people who did. Right. Well, everybody's got to breathe. And if you are here on the front range, you know, what can people do to protect themselves or their children? You know, I think a good first step is just to keep an eye on air pollution levels. There's a few good phone apps now to do that. I'd recommend the EPA's Air Now. IQ Air is another really good one. If the levels are high, it's probably a good idea for adults and kids to stay inside. Ozone doesn't tend to stick around in homes. Um, Another thing is ozone tends to get worse throughout the day. So if you you want to really go outside and exercise, breathe a lot of air in, try to do it in the morning and not in the afternoons. CPR climate reporter Sam Brash speaking with my colleague Mike Lamp. Thanks for joining us and to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Avery Lill, with special thanks to Nancy Lofholm. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.